would be strong and fighting um, whatever they're going through. And, and I know it takes a toll on families, uh, teachers as well. I've talked to a number of teachers and they said a lot of schools are operating at 50, 60% capacity in terms of the teachers that are available to teach right now. So yeah, there's just that big uh, storm of strain on our uh, uh, young children, families, and, and school systems. So let's pray for them. God, we thank you for the children in our congregation. They're precious to us, God. They're spiritual children and grandchildren in Christ, and we bring them before you, whether they're uh, recovering, whether they are um, really struggling with an illness or specifically Omicron, God, we just pray and ask for your protection, and that you would strengthen and sustain their bodies, that you would bring relief and rapid uh, release from uh, whatever uh, virus or illness they're, they're battling, God. Uh, and also just uh, bless and help the family because if there's multiple people sick and grandparents are sick, there's just a, a greater level of anxiety of where that could go. And so um, may this be a time where uh, parents and grandparents model and teach children what it looks like to look to you during difficult times and during times of illness. And um, God, we're trusting you with uh, these children and pray that you would strengthen them and pray for the, the schools and the administrators and the leadership and the teachers, God, who are, yeah, just right on that, that edge of having to shut down God and the strain that creates, the different psychological and relational and emotional pressure. We just pray that you bless your teachers. And uh, for Christian teachers in our uh, private and public systems, God, that you would uh, really cause them to be a light where they are and to uh, show uh, faith and confidence in the midst of uh, all these storms happening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before I get into my message, why don't uh, you take a few moments uh, to stand, turn to a few people around you, it doesn't have to be one-on-one, -on -one. and what our family does usually every night is we share a rose and a thorn from our day. Best part of our day, not so great part of our day. I totally get that there might not be a high trust between certain people. You might not even know the person you're talking to. So you, know, you just share what's appropriate, some highlight or a good thing that happened to you this week, and then share something that was challenging or difficult and trust you to uh, share what you feel like is appropriate. So just take a few moments and talk with a few people around you with that.
Okay, let's, um, let's find your way back to your seats. Love to hear the, the connecting. That's kind of a, you know, just as a little church life hack thing, that's something that you can do like after the service too. You can just go up to someone and even if you don't know them, introduce yourself and say, hey, like what was your rose and thorn this week? Or you say, hey, what was, you know, you can just use that as a conversational starting point. Um, share that with someone else. Sometimes we just need a little bit of a prompt beyond like, hey, hey, do I know you? No. Meeting for the first time, thanks. What do you do? Just jump right in and be like, hey, like what's something cool that happened to you this week or what's something challenging? And then trust the other person to share. And if they do share something significant, honor that and be like, wow, thanks a lot for sharing. Okay, let's pray. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 6 today. And we're just going to work through the chapter and continue on our series. God, as we open up your word, I pray that you would use it to form us, to challenge us, to inspire us, to sharpen us. God, I pray that this morning you would vindicate your word that says your word never returns void. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. And I know that you have plans and purposes for your word this morning in my life, in the life of everyone here and us as a church. So I pray that you would see those things done to the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Okay, so we're moving through a book. Uh, It's called 1 Samuel. It's the first of two books centered around um, the rise of the, uh, what will eventually become the Davidic king, uh, kingship in Israel. This is a time where uh, at the start of the book, it's a, it's a very dark time in Israel's history. They've come, it's kind of overlaps with the period of judges where they have no king, they have no sort of um, monarchy, but they have judges. But if you read through the book of Judges, uh, it's, a, it's a very dark book, to, to be honest, because it unflinchingly shows what happens when, as God's people continually say, no thanks God, we'll do it from here. We'll do what seems right in our own eyes. And they do that as a nation, they do that as individuals, and the leadership becomes more and more corrupt, the priestly leadership that is meant to shepherd God's people in a way that's faithful. They begin just leveraging the power and influence that they have to make their own lives easier, to exploit and abuse those under them. And yet, uh, Samuel begins with this grace note, this note of a quiet little um, hope in this prophet Samuel that God begins to raise up. And the first three chapters of 1 Samuel deal with God beginning to remove the existing corrupted kind of cancerous leadership out of power and moving Samuel into power. Then the next three chapters is a big sh- uh, scene shift where we are focused on the Ark of the Covenant which is kind of the house of God's presence at that time. And it gets into all this trouble in chapter 4. It's captured by the Philistines after the Israelites march it into battle and kind of in the hopes that it's going to be an auto-win warfare weapon. God doesn't uh, honor that intent because it's not coming from any desire to actually be faithful to him. So it's captured by the Philistines. Then in chapter 5, the ark is brought to Dagon's temple. That's the chief god of the Philistines. And um, while it's placed beside Dagon, kind of underneath him, as a way for the Philistines to say, oh, like our god is actually the lord of lords, the god of gods, the king of kings. Um, Over the next few days, the ark 
puts Dagon in its rightful place, which is ultimately a place of servitude and subjection under itself. Then the city of Ashdod begins experiencing plague-like issues, tumors and boils, and they send the ark to Gath. And then in uh, chapter 5 we read, after they had moved it to Gath, the Lord's hand was against that city. They experience an outbreak of tumors, so they send it to Ekron. So now there's this hot potato thing happening where no one really wants the ark. They're seeing a correlation that wherever the ark goes, cities with the ark in it, and in, in, um, Philistine stronghold cities with the ark in it, it's only a matter of time before these plague-like issues happen. The ark of God was in Ekron, and the people of Ekron cry out. They're like, hey, you've brought the ark of God to kill us. So now there's infighting amongst the Philistines. So they called all the rulers of the Philistines together and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let's send it back to its own place or it's going to kill us. Because it says that death had filled the city with panic and God's hand was heavy upon it. So now we're moving into chapter 6 and this is sort of the continuation of the story. What's going to happen to the ark? Verse number 1. You can follow along in your Bible or in the sermon notes that are by the front. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. So this is pagan priests and pagan diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. So they're religious people and they aren't, they don't want to make another misstep. So they bring their um, priesthood together and say, what's sort of the protocol like, we've obviously offended the God of Israel. How do we kind of put this back? You know when you're a kid and, like, you maybe it didn't happen to you, you move something and you break something, and then you, like, decide to be like, how do I put this back on the shelf <laughs> so that no one notices anything happened to it? I'm just going to kind of like, oh, oh, it's good, and then you walk away. That's kind of like what the Philistines are like. We have something that we can't handle. We want to put it back without doing any more damage. So they say, verse 3, if you return the ark of God, sorry, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him, and then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. So the priests say, you don't just send the ark back. You have to send back a, a gift, a guilt offering. And this was an offering that was used to apologize for a desecration or contamination of some kind. So these pagan priests are like, you have desecrated something, uh, this holy thing, um, and you have to make a payment for that. Um, the other word that can be used here is a penalty or a rep uh, reparation. It's a compensation that is paid. A guilt offering is a compensation that is paid to protect against further suffering. So it's, I did something wrong, I'm really sorry, here, take this to apologize for what I did and that, like, we're kind of square, like, I don't want any more bad to befall me. The Philistines said, well, what guilt offering should we send? And they said, five gold tumors, and the word Hebrew for tumor is also stronghold. So there's five Philistine strongholds, so they said, send five golden tumors or hills or strongholds and, and it's about a 50-50 depending on what you, if people thought it was like an actual like tumor, like just a, like a round ball of gold or if they were uh, carved out to more intricate 
stronghold facsimiles, and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. So they made models uh, of the tumors and the rats that were destroying the country, and they gave glory to Israel's God. Pretty interesting, right? They're like, wow, God, this God is like legit. He is the real deal. And then it says, perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods in your land. So these are pagan priests counseling the Philistines, in a sense, how to repent and how to make things right with God. And then they give them a warning. They said, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? So ironically, the the Philistine priests and the diviners are now urging the people and almost preaching to them to give glory to God, send a guilt offering, learn the lesson from the Egyptians. We've heard those stories about what this God of Israel did to the Egyptians and they hardened their heart and thought they could stand toe to toe. That's not a winning strategy. Do not do that with this God. Instead, honor Yahweh, the God of Israel. Verse seven. So they continue in the council. They say, okay, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna get a new cart ready. Two cows that have recently calved and have never been yoked. So these are uh, cows that have just had young and they've never been yoked together, which is the the wooden thing that you were placed on the cattle that pulled the cart. And then hitch the cows to the cart, but take the calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put gold objects that you're sending back to them as the guilt offering, and then send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it doesn't, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So there's still an element of testing. They're like, is it causation or correlation? Wherever the ark goes, there's all these tumors and bad things. We're pretty sure it's Yahweh punishing us, but this is how we're going to test it. We're going to stack the deck in favor of the ark not being returned because we're going to take two cows whose maternal instincts are to stay with their young and who have never pulled on a cart before. We're going to yoke them together, send them in the opposite direction of their penned up young. And that will be the test because if it's the the natural course of things is the cows aren't going to go anywhere. They're going to want to return to their young. So if the ark gets delivered in the opposite direction, then we know there's a supernatural force at work. Because no force in nature would compel newly unyoked mothering cows away from their young. So they did this. And they took two such cows, hitched them to the cart, penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart along with the chest containing the gold rats and the tumors. And then what happens? The cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh. Keeping to the road and lowing all the way, they didn't turn right or left, just laser beam. The rulers of the Philistines followed them, so they're kind of trailing the ark from a distance, watching as this unfolds. And they followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So Beth Shemesh is on sort of like in Israelite territory, but kind of like a border town. That's where Philistia, Philistine territory, becomes Israelite territory. 
Now, verse 13, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and they looked up and saw the ark, and they rejoiced at it. The ark came to the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock, and the people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cow as a burnt offering to the Lord. This is an amazing celebration. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. And on that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to God. They recognized that this wasn't just happen chance. This wasn't a coincidence. God was delivering the ark back to them, which for them also was about God returning to them. Remember Ichabod at the end of um, Eli's daughter-in-law who dies in childbirth and she names the child Ichabod because with the capture of the ark, the glory of God is, have left, has left Israel. But now the glory of God's coming back. That's huge. Verse 16, the five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and returned that same day to Ekron. Verse 17, these are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. Now you almost think like, oh, that's it. Close out the scene. That's awesome. This is such good news. The ark is back. People are celebrating. They're having a spontaneous worship and sacrifice before God. It's like awesome. And scene. That's not the end of the scene. Verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh putting 70 of them, some of your Bibles, if they're older, might say 50,000. That's a translation error. There's no way that a small rural border town even had 50,000 people at that time. It's 70. 70 to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. So they lifted the lid and looked in it. Probably like, check if everything was still there. Maybe they just sent us back an empty ark. But they were commanded not to touch the ark. They look in it, they die. And the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And then now there's sort of an illusion. The same thing's now happening for them. They're like, who can stand in the presence of this God? Um, uh, who do we pass the ark on to? We don't want it. Like, this thing is powerful. So we're getting the same sort of hot potato thing happening with the Israelites. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, which is about uh, nine miles northeast of Beth Shemesh. The Philistines have returned, returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. And then we're going to move into chapter 7 because the first two verses kind of overlap in it brings the narrative of this section to a close. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. And then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. 
for the rest of chapter 7, we're going to move back to off of the ark, back to Samuel. And we're actually not going to hear about the ark again until 2 Samuel chapter 6. So this is a really brief kind of incursion in the text of God doing something and fixating on the ark, and then we'll hear about it later. I want to throw out, though, things that you might observe, be thinking through questions that you have, because this is an example of a text where, okay, this stuff happens, but again, how do we appropriate this text for us? What lessons can we learn from this text? What principles does this text point us to that might be helpful in thinking about what does it mean to faithfully follow Jesus today? What are the implications of this text for those who say, I've given my life to God and I want to follow God faithfully? So I have a few written here, but I'm interested to hear um, what you think. What What are some lessons or some observations that you think are important for us from this text? Rick. Yeah. And then here you see God's presence is not approachable. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, so for, for those of you who are listening online, uh, Rick just, has, just asked, how do you connect this when, when Jesus comes, the full manifestation and, and, uh, of God in human form? He says, come to me. Like there's an invitation to draw close. And yet here the text seems to be, uh, well, it doesn't seem to be. It, it's making it very clear that the, um, the place of, as you move towards a place of intensified presence of God, you actually move from being like protected to being cared for, to endangering yourself, to destroyed. Kind of like the sun. From a distance, warm, love it. Too close, game over. How do you square those things? That is an excellent question. You can preach on that in the weeks ahead, Rick. I'm going to punt that to you. <laughs> I'm usually good on my feet, but that's, that's an interesting one. That's really, really fascinating. I'll get back to you. Or maybe someone else has, a, has an idea here. Wendy? Okay, so that, that question landed with you, and you're like, if, if you could just write a little summation, Rick, and send it out to everybody, <laughs> that would clear up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's kind of a needle to be threaded there, right? Where um, someone was saying for those watching online, you know, that's a, it's a live issue for them of wanting a intimate relationship with God knowing that God does invite us to come forward and God is, in one sense, approachable, but to never let that tip over into a a casualness or an approach that lacks some level of reverence. We can get that wrong, right? I mean, if you you grew up in a very, very conservative, fundamentalist type type of environment, the emphasis is 
so often, whether or not it's often stated, it's felt. It's like God is unapproachable, like stern, careful, reverence, and that's always serious. And, the, and you kind of pick up that like, even though people say God's approachable, you're like, really? And then if you grew up, let's say, in, in a much more um, casual or let's say uh, theologically liberal or progressive understanding, there can be sort of a, almost an indifference to God's holiness. And kind of like, God's awesome, God's like my sky buddy. It's like, ooh, you know, fist pump God, awesome. And you lose some of that reverence that says, you're not approaching like a buddy. Like this is the God of the universe. And um, certainly, Rick, to your point, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole huge discussion here and, and window in terms of how the covenants work between the first covenant and the second covenant, the old covenant and a new covenant, a covenant written on stone where there still has to be certain parameters of presence and connection to God and a new covenant written in blood. Um, and so after Jesus, uh, and this is, you know, you probably want to do a deep dive of Hebrews to think through how does the sacrifice of Jesus and now Jesus operating as our high priest, how does that change the nature of the access that we have to God now? Because we no longer simply have a human high priest, but a high priest who is fully God, fully man, who's covered us. And so now when we approach the throne, we can do so with confidence, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ. So there'd be a lot of atonement theology and covenantal theology that would fit in there. But part of that informs how you read the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament, because that wasn't in place yet, there has to be a kind of a, a barrier, right? Like even with Sinai, right? It's like God gathers the people, but it's like, don't touch the mountain. Like close, but not too close. And then you see the opposite with, with Jesus, where it's, you know, now incarnation, death, and resurrection. Now it's come to me, anyone who, and then not only does is it come to me, but he goes out to find people. Right? He goes out to find the leopards, the lep uh, leopards, lepers, uh, and he goes out to find those who just self-selected out of drawing near to God because of that barrier that was created because of their sin or because of something that afflicted them. And so we see God actually chasing after those who think that they can't draw near. Any other lessons from here that you notice or that you maybe wonder if, wonder if there's something to this here? I'll uh, just briefly skim through mine if you want to follow up. Um, love to have coffee because they're, they're really rich. I mean, the first is that God is, and this dovetails really well with what uh, Wendy shared. You know, God is holy and sovereign, and so the ark, obviously, is nothing to be toyed with, but at that time, it, you know, Israel had to learn like this. Again, God is not a spiritual technology that we stand over and say, God, do this. He's not like a, he's not like a Roomba, right? Little vacuum thing. You just like turn it on. Oh, it'll clean up my mess. And then I just get to go over here and live my life. It's like, no, you are serving God. God is not serving you. And whenever Israel, again, too familiar and tried to leverage God as what I talked about a few weeks ago, a spiritual technology to make their life better, God was like, uh, no, right? I mean, I have those conversations with my kids where there are certain times where they, whether it's a tone, inflection in the voice, the way something is worded, it's like, I do believe that uh, one of my roles as a father is to serve and love my family, 
but I'm not like serving you in the way that you seem to be inferring by the fact that you told me to do something or very casually said, oh, dad, blah, 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 blah. No. So you have to have those little reminders that say, I love you. We have a deep, deep bond, but I am your father. And that means that there are certain ways of relating that we can't transgress before that gets flipped in an unhealthy way. Another one is that the Philistines were religious people, um, and they were sincere. They were what we would call God-fearing, not our God, but they were God-fearing to Dagon and, and to maybe a pantheon of gods. And there is kind of a lesson here that like, you can be sincerely religious and still sincerely wrong. But we live in a world where often, as long as someone believes something really deeply and sincerely, that's kind of like good enough. Like that's like awesome. But I think there's a, a teaching in this text that says, sincerely, oh, our camera battery died. Oh, oh. Moment of silence for everybody who got cut off on the live stream. But we'll continue to record this and they'll still be able to get the message. So, um, Also notice that every time God saves, he always brings something with him. In Exodus, he says, I want you to go around to your Egyptian neighbors. They're just going to give you gold. And here he says, I'm going to make these guys return with a guilt offering. It's going to be gold. And that's actually theologically pretty significant because what that means is when God takes you from a place of bondage and um, restriction, your, your own Egypt, as it were, your place of slavery, God never delivers you empty-handed. And there's this uh, turn of phrase that some theologians use called the gold of the Egyptians. And that means when God brings us from a place of darkness, what he often does is he brings the best things with us. He doesn't like cut us off and be like, oh, there's gonna be nothing to do with this before. We live that lifestyle behind. We live that enslavement behind. But if there's something good that was in our past or connected to um, this particular time in our life, God brings it forward and he redeems it. The Egyptians, or in this time in your life, you didn't have access to this. I'm giving you access to it now. And that's actually, I think, pretty amazing. Um, It has a lot of theological implications. And the last is that hardships are designed to lead us to reflect on our own relationship with God, where we're at, and maybe even to repent. Right, 1 Samuel 7, 2 says, then all of Israel turned back to God. And it says, you know, they mourn because God's hand was heavy against them, those 70 that died. And it's a truth that none of us want to, in a sense, celebrate. It's because it's hard, but... There are times where hard things, hard experiences, um, crises, those can be and often are a mechanism that cause us to kind of stop and say, what am I doing? How am I living? Am I actually living for God or have I let God become peripheral and he's kind of in orbit over here and I'm not rejecting God. It's, again, it's just like, it's more like he's an addition to my life, not I am trying to build my life around him. And then I hope you can see in the big picture of what God is doing. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but God is rescuing himself. He is fighting for his own glory and his own vindication of his promises. He says to Israel, I'm never, in a sense, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. You are my people. I've bonded myself to you in covenant. And he fulfills that. But notice that 
God is, um, he's providing salvation for his enemies. The Philistines don't have to come under the catastrophic judgment of God as long as they do one thing, and that's provide a guilt offering. If you provide a guilt, guilt offering, something of deep worth, not just like uh, throw some pennies in the collection plate and send it on off the cart, gold, something of immense value, then God's hand of judgment can be removed. And there's a not-so-subtle echo there to what happens in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Because one way to think about the biblical story is because of our rebellion to God, we're all enemies to God. And maybe not enemies in the sense of like, oh, I'm going to live in the most anti-God way possible, but enemies in the sense of saying, I want to be my own God, thank you very much. So God, if you want to come into my life and be like a little pet, no problem. There's an enmity there. There's a diminishment of God's glory. And we are under the hand of judgment, the Bible says, unless we can provide a guilt offering. But who among us could ever provide an offering where God would be like, oh, we're squared up, we're good. Like your enmity deserves a certain response from me, but, oh, you gave me a lot of money, you went on a, a year-long binge of doing as many good things as you could for your neighbors, oh, we're, we're, we're squared up, it's all good. No, God says, the debt that is owed can't be paid. There's an insufficiency in what can be offered as a guilt offering. There's nothing valuable enough that can overwhelm and stay my hand of judgment. So the only thing glorious and valuable enough is, in a sense, myself, my son. So Jesus comes in our place and says, I'll pay for Jeff, I'll provide a guilt offering on his behalf so that the hand of judgment can be removed and the hand of blessing and full acceptance can be applied. So even in a story like this, you see God's mercy towards the big bad enemies of God in the Old Testament, but we have to always put ourselves in that situation. We may not feel like Philistines a lot of the time. Maybe we even consider ourselves reasonably good when you kind of look around at people. But the gospel, the central through line of Christianity, God had to come, had to die, and then rose again to provide, in part, a guilt offering, a victory over sin and death so that we no longer had to live as enemies of God. Now we can be part of the family of God. We can be adopted in. And that's why if you've never embraced Christ as your Savior, if you've never honestly reckoned with God and said, God, I am living in opposition to you. Some days and some weeks it's worse than others, but I want that to change. I want to turn from that, and I actually want to go on the journey of saying, you're the center. You're the most important thing. You're glorious. And I can't make that happen, God, but you've made a way for that to happen through Jesus on the cross. That's what it means to become a Christian, to yield to that truth and say, Jesus, would you be my savior? Would you be my guilt offering to make things right between me and God so that now I can follow you into the future that God has for me? If you have any questions about how to do that, talk to Rick, talk to myself, talk to a trusted Christian friend, and we can lead you through a very simple process. But that's a critical process, and one that opens up 
I mean, literally opens up an entire new way of living and an entire new eternal trajectory. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love, not just for your people, Israel, but for the enemies of God, those who are hardened and calloused and um, in all kinds of ways reject and ignore you. God, I love that line that says, the people returned to the Lord. And some of us need to return to you. Some of us who have yielded our lives to you, but we need to return to you. We've been playing a little fast and loose and a little casual. Teach us what that looks like, God. Help us to humble ourselves and to build our life on you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen.